ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mice Media's Twitter space, The Trap. Unfortunately, last night's show missed recording about the first 10 minutes. So I will tell everybody who we were joined by, and then we will catch up with the program in progress. The Trap was hosted by Bryn Davis and yours truly, Miss Robin. Um, and the topic of discussion was weaponizing school shootings. And we um, gathered several different panelists from um, different areas, and there probably was so much information it could have each had its own show. Um, but we were joined by Daquan Bruce, who is the Executive Director of Concerned Communities for America, um, that works on um, the economic empowerment, public safety, and quality education for black communities. He um, is a survivor of being shot and had amazing insight. We were also joined by Dr. Erica Anderson. Um, she is a 30-year psychologist, um, clinical psychologist of 30 years. She has extensive experience with working with clients of all ages, including um, trans that um, whom she herself is part of that community and her insights were absolutely invaluable. And then we were also joined by Dom Luker, breaker of narratives on Twitter. Um, he is an investigative journalist um, and his investigative threads on Twitter have been absolutely amazing, highly wor worth following all three of these amazing people. Um, please look them up. Um, they will be posted on our space as well. And now we will join the program in progress with Daquan Bruce speaking. Oh, I, I think the thing about gun violence, especially specifically here in the U.S., uh, is that the, the thing to be understood is that it could happen to anyone. Um, you know, growing up, I grew up in a predominantly black community in Chicago. And, you know, kind of the default was that, you know, any one of us could be victims of gun violence. But the reality of, of the world we live in is that, you know, violence, whether it's, you know, with a firearm or not, it doesn't discriminate against any persons. And in this specific situation, um, you know, this tragedy hit closer to home um, and all of the ones involving younger kids hit closer to home for me because just the day before this happened, um, I got a call from my mom and she was, you know, normally she's very cheery and happy, um, but she was in a much more somber um, mood. And she told informed me that um, the, uh, one of the kids from my, my little brother's school um, had went to aftercare. And while he was at aftercare, he put his book bag on the ground, like kind of slammed it down and a gun went off in his backpack. Um, fortunately, no one no one was hurt. Um, but they later found out that this young man had been bringing a gun to school. This is a nine year old um, on the south side, the south suburbs of Chicago who had been bringing a gun to school. And most of uh, the speculation currently is because he had been being bullied. Um, and so this, I get this call, you know, it shook me to my core that, you know, quite possibly the reality that my nine-year-old brother who lives in a very safe community, a very diverse community, um, could have become the victim of a school shooting at the hands of one of his peers. Um, and then the next day, we hear about this tragedy in Nashville. When I tell you, there there are very few things that brings me to, to tears, but this was definitely one of those situations because I realized having lived through um, gun violence and then hearing the day before that this could have been my brother, I realized more now than any time that the children in our country are at risk. Uh, so 
you know, in going through the organizations that you've built and you're the director of, does that, does that shift your perspective? Does that change anything that you already had felt about, you know, how to buffer against this kind of, th- these kind of things happening? Or, you know, maybe, maybe even explain a little bit about, you know, the community approach that you take, uh, you know, with your organization. Absolutely. So at CCA, our, our goal is to support um, minority communities and uplift the voices um, on specific issues, especially of um, dealing with issues of uh, economic mobility and empowerment, uh, crime and safety. Um, we talk a lot about education and championing parents' rights um, when it comes to education and issues around there. We really seek to give a voice to those who feel as though they aren't being listened to, they aren't being heard. But more importantly, we seek to build a community. So we've not launched a few initiatives. Uh, one of our initiatives being uh, what we call our Contract of Black America, where we've been going to community to community and holding roundtable discussions um, and including political figures, business leaders, uh, you know, community leaders, and every individual from the community. And we've invited them to an open forum where we talk about key issues and not just to pontificate about the problem, but co-create solutions because we are, we know what the problems are. The problems are visible to us on a daily basis. And so one of the things that we have been doing in this um, initiative is we've been taking the solutions that we discuss with the community and we've been putting together a legislative agenda that we take to the members of Congress who represent those in, uh, those districts and communities and we get their buy-in and support um, to create a legislative package around those specific issues. And we've been discussing having more uh, forums on crime and community safety. And this situation brings forth the need, but also the need to branch out and, and not just focus solely uh, directly on the Black community, but have these types of conversations um, across communities and bring in individuals of different cultural backgrounds so that we can really get to the heart of the matter. And that that really is that we all need to be working together to solve these problems. So, you know, right away, obviously, when, the, when, when that news comes out, you, you know, you hear reports, obviously, from other different media outlets, but you also hear it from the White House and you hear, you know, you hear it from other politicians. And the first thing that's jumped to is, you know, gun control. That's that's generally the first topic that that's really put out there. In, you know, in your estimation, is that is that a piece of the puzzle, or is it something that you think that if you get at the root of the problem, that the gun control part is not an issue at large? You know, yeah. do you think that it can be eradicated from you know giving opportunities and really addressing the source of the issue? Yeah, I'll say two things to that. The first one is for a, a very long time in my life. I was a, a, a very strong proponent of, of the way in which modern progressives push gun control, right? My, I was very, very much anti-gun. Um, and the reason was because I grew up in a community where many of my friends were murdered, where many of, of the kids in, um, in my neighborhood were under the constant threat of gun violence. And, and I realized that it's, it's super easy to get a gun in Chicago, and it's, it's something that's going to happen. So my solution as a, as, a, as a kid was, all right, let's just take them all away, right? Mm-hmm. But growing up, and it wasn't until I had the gun pulled on me the very first time. Uh, I, was, I was about 14 years old, and I was standing on the street corner doing what my mom said don't do. <laughs> um, standing on the street corner with a bunch <laughs> of friends. It's about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, two young men walk by. 
and you know we think nothing of it they come back behind us um and one of my friends he like tells me to like turn around and as i turn around i'm face to face staring down the barrel um of a gun and like you can tell that the gun had been fired not too long ago because i could see the red you know inside of the barrel um directly pointed at my face right and as the guy is like yelling at us to get on the ground um it wasn't it was none other than my neighbor who was you know carrying who carries legally um who had been sitting on his porch and he just so happened by the by the grace of god to be watching us um and he jumped off the porch pulled his pulled his gun and he shot two shots in the air and chased the guys the guy as they as they ran away and we all dispersed that moment changed my view on this the 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 topic of gun control because I realized that the people who mean to do harms with weapons will always find a way to get them. And, you know, a lot of people like to like to, you know, throw out, you know, that we need stricter gun laws. I grew up in Chicago. We have the strictest gun laws in the country. When I tell you there have been so many times that I I found guns at the park. My friends found guns, walk on our way to school, things like that. It's so easy to get. Right. It's probably statistically probably easier to get a gun than a book, um, at least so I've heard. Um, but I realized that we shouldn't seek to restrict lawful ownership, but we should be more responsible in, in who we allow to, you know, legally purchase, legally um, obtain and legally maintain uh, firearms. But more importantly, if a person has a child in their home, or if a person, you know, has a certain um, um, illness, then there should be even more restrictions or even stricter penalties for the misuse or mis um, storage of such weapons. So that moment and then becoming a victim of gun violence myself by someone who had a gun illegally really changed my view about it. And to answer your question, um, you know, the the. President Biden and everyone has jumped to the topic of gun control. But what we really should be discussing is the root of the matter. And that is that there is mental illness and that there's deep seated hatred uh, in our country. And it, it, it isn't respective of person. It isn't respective of political ideology. And it isn't respective of religious or, or a religious background. Um, and we need to really talk about and put, put programs and pro uh, projects in place that address that issue. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about the community solutions, right, and almost like an education process that, that, can, that can heal some of the communities and solve some of these issues, I think to most people and to myself, too, that seems like it's, it's a long process, right? That doesn't, that doesn't yeah. stop, stop things immediately. But when you look at it, you know, I had read a statistic, you know, I guess it was a couple months ago and I looked it up again today, is there's more guns in America than there are human beings. So we're talking about 370 million guns or 380 million guns. You know, in circulation to stop that, it's not like turning off a spigot, right? Exactly. They're still going to exist. I think if you could eradicate them immediately with a, you know, just wave a magic wand and they're gone, I, you know, I, I see that. But, you know, the longer term play is probably getting rid of those guns, where the shorter term play is probably, you know, dealing with it on a community level and, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, kind of a, a re education for lack of a better word. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we've seen time and time again that communities that that come together, that encourage active participation, that there is that there tends to be less crime. Um, it's only really in communities that 
that enforce a very relaxed, you know, view of uh, penalties, I would say, on crime communities that um, are very individualistic and, and you know, aren't as um, what's the word I'm looking for, aren't as um, as cohesive, you know, that you that you see a lot more um, crime, especially gun violence, take place. Um, and so one of the things that, that we've been, you know, in, encouraging as part of our contract with Black America is that Congress can't solve every issue. You, if, if you could legislate morality, if you could legislate, you know, um, common sense, these things probably would have been solved years ago, right? Decades ago, even. Um, it takes a, a joint effort between those who have legislative authority and those who have authority within their communities and, you know, everyone else as, as well to really make change possible and change happen. Um, and so as part of the contract with Black America, we also stress, you know, to put in solutions and create solutions that are focused on what we can do today to start making a difference. So, for example, one of the um, roundtables we held was in Georgia and we focused on uh, entrepreneurship. We wanted to know how do we encourage more young black people to become entrepreneurs? How do we make space for, for more entrepreneurs in, you know, uh, emerging, emerging technology spaces? How do we, you know, support the use of, uh, or the, the new, the new ventures into forms of entrepreneurship than, you know, the brick and mortar type entrepreneurship, right? And while we came up with a very beautiful legislative agenda, it took for people to stand up and say, hey, I'm going to become a mentor. I'm committing today, right now, to start mentoring young people who are interested in, in becoming men, um, entrepreneurs in my field. It took for people to agree to host um, um, workshops and, and things like that in schools to talk about creating um, entrepreneurship programming for there to be a sustainable change. And um, simply what I'm saying is there has to be a commitment within the community to change in order for you know lasting change to take place because congress can't do it all the president definitely cannot do it all um and it's and the court can't do it all you know it takes a responsibility the responsibility of the people as well daquan this no, is miss robin i i i wanted to just really quickly because you brought up earlier um mental issues that never get talked about i think uh bryn you mentioned it as well and if i feel like politicians, whenever anything happens with a mass shooting, they act as if these two things that we're talking about are the same. You're talking mm. about, um, you know, communities that are in effect in these war zones and gun violence is a way of life a lot of times in these communities. And this is something that we need to work on in a different aspect, like you said, with a community, whereas mm. mass shootings for the most part, you find out afterwards that it had to do something, you know, there was some kind of mental issue. This was an instability. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Erica Anderson is on with us, who has been in um, psychology for over 30 years. Not only does she talk about, um, um, you know, d does therapy, but in her profession, she has dealt specifically with transgender issues, which is a whole nother wrinkle that we're adding to all of this mix with this mass shooting that happened in um, a couple days ago. Yeah, Robin, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, you know, kind of going back to that, that intro a little bit is, 
you know, right away when, when I heard about this shooting, before I heard anything about the number of victims, before I heard anything about what city or state it was in, before I heard anything about, you know, the tragedy itself, I immediately heard that the shooter was uh, transgender. That, that was the first thing I heard. And it, it's almost as though, you know, it's immediately trying to be weaponized from, from one ideology against another, right? It's, it, it seems horrible to even think this way, but you know, when it's a, you know, a white heterosexual male, they're going to pigeonhole him and try to figure out his politics and announce that, right? And in this case, it, it's the other side of the coin. It, it's immediately about uh, their orientation and, you know, weaponizing that to an extent to put them in a, you know, pigeonhole it as, you know, this is the outcome of, you know, uh, members of the transgender community and what happens when this goes too far. Those are the two narratives that are set before I even hear about the crime itself. So again, you know, Bring Dr. Dr. Eric Anderson on, you know, and and with Daquan just men- mentioning mental illness, I feel like you know she's the perfect person to to give some insight here, and I'm really excited to have her up. Segway me. Segway you. <laughs> Hi, uh, thanks for having me. So when I first heard about it on Monday, uh, I was also alarmed. And saddened as we all were that yet, yet there, again there was another shooting, mass shooting, and this time in a in a school with young children, and children and adults were all killed. Uh, six people, innocent people, and the shooters seven. Uh, it, it's horrible. Um, one of the things that you might want to know, all of you who are listening, is that we unfortunately have uh, created and have met a new milestone in America. Uh, Scientific American has just published a, a report uh, based on data from the Centers for Disease Control that for the first time in America, uh, everyone under the, the leading cause of death for people under 25 is guns. It used to be accidents. It used to be auto accidents until recent years. And the trends have been down for auto accident fatalities and up for fatalities using guns, and of course, mass shootings are are a horrible confirmation of this. So I, I'm concerned about that, but you, you want me to, I'm sure, address the both the mental illness issue and the trans issue. I will say uh, the experts who've been following mass shootings, which is generally understood to be uh, a shooting where there are more than four fatalities uh, in addition to the shooter, if the shooter is uh, is killed, um, that this is the first time in basically 20 years since these statistics have been kept where someone who uh, was the shooter was identified in some way as being trans. Uh, so it's it's not like there's an epidemic of crazy trans people running around. Uh, I've been interviewed a lot in the last few days about this, and I think it's really important to point out that uh, there, there's no indication that uh, trans identity per se is destabilizing, that there are plenty of trans people in America who are good citizens, uh, obeying the law, kind, have families, are good workers in their jobs and so on. We do have some open questions about this individual shooter. Uh, Audrey, I guess, was her legal name. And, uh, and I had lots of questions, which I've asked of myself and anyone that uh, I think might have new information. There was information released in the last 24 hours by the police chief that uh, this individual, the shooter, had been under care of some kind of a doctor. We don't know what kind. 
for some kind of emotional problem, uh, and we don't know what that might be. We also have some questions, those of us who do, do work with trans people, about, you know, can we really understand this person to be transgender? They, they on their LinkedIn profile, were still using, as of Monday, uh, their legal name, which is Audrey, uh, but they had posted on their LinkedIn profile that their preferred pronouns were he, him. So we're speculating, a lot of us. I don't know the particulars of the medical care that this person was getting. I would like to know. I'd have more to say once I, once I knew that, because I know a lot about hormones. I know a lot about social and medical transition for people who are transgender. But well, unfortunately, I don't know much more than, than what everyone knows, which is that some have labeled this person as transgender. Well, yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there's, there's a massive difference between someone who identifies and somebody that's actually transitioning, right? So, you know, to even make any assumptions on A, the care, but B, if they were taking anything, et cetera, there, you know, there, there's nothing to suggest that they were actually in the process of transitioning. But if they were, does that play, does it, from a clinical perspective, are any of the, you know, whether they're hormones or any other kind of medication that are being taken, is there anything that would lead to, uh, you know, extreme behavior or, or any massive changes on that front? Well, the speculation is, uh, and a number of people have asked me, a number of journalists have asked me, the speculation is that this person is a natal female person, born girl, who was uh, asserting a male gender identity and was transitioning in, in some way. If that were the case, we don't. I don't know yet, but if it were the case, likely they would be prescribed testosterone as the medicine that would allow them to uh, transition in terms of their physical, medical transition. Testosterone is a controlled substance. It is more tightly controlled as a prescription medication than most prescription medications. You're not supposed to be able to get it uh, in any way other than through a prescription from a medical provider. Um, and the people I, I know, and I work with them every day, who, who help uh, transition trans people are very careful about the use of testosterone. So one of my questions would be, was this person taking testosterone? And if so, who was prescribing it? And what was the protocol that they were using to monitor the, the care that was being given? The reference to emotional instability or some other kind of emotional issues is also important because uh, there are plenty of indications that testosterone is a powerful biochemical. It's, uh, it's something that in other circles is considered a performance-enhancing drug. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that testosterone given to some people will increase their aggressiveness. Uh, there's some uh, anecdotal information that uh, testosterone for some people uh, can be uh, destabilizing in terms of their mood and, and emotion. So we have lots of questions, uh, not very many answers thus far. The medical providers are probably uh, quite shaken by this, if there are some medical providers, whether it's a mental health person who is treating this, the shooter for mental health issues or a medical provider treating the person for transgender health issues. In, in, in either event, if, if I were one of them, I'd be very disturbed, like everyone is, but, but have a special level of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, unease, because we naturally would want to know what was going on with the person who would do this horrible act uh, in a premeditated way 
uh, against innocent targets. Yeah, you know, in, in, in looking at it, right, in, you know, one of the first, uh, you know, descriptors of this whole thing is it being someone from the transgender community. I think one of the things that pops out is, you know, uh, 99% of the time, quite literally, when there is a shooting like this, it's from a male, right? Correct. And this Correct. mass shooter was born female. And I think that's what, what, what gets a lot of attention around it to begin with, even if you, if you, if you don't even broach the, the transgender uh, topic or, or that component of things. It's, it's, it's an outlier in that, you know, someone born female executes a, a mass shooting at a school, which, you know, I, I think is, you know, kind of lost here. Not many people are talking about it on that front, but that's definitely it's very rare, very, it's very, very rare. Very rare. I mean, I was looking up so since in the last 50 years, there's only been f- four female shooters that have, right. you know, killed a handful of people, which, which is striking. But, you know, I think what a lot of people who, who don't have, uh, you know, your background and your education wonder, right. Is, you know, a teenager who's going through transitioning like this, right. It, to, to whatever extent it is and, and not, and not this person individually, but is there ever any other associated um, behaviors that happen, or is there anything else that that's tied to this that you know you wouldn't find in the rest of um, you know uh, the another another teenager that's going through a, a, a heterosexual lifestyle? Is there anything that that comes along with this transitioning that um, pushes anybody in any other direction, even if it's if it's not aggression? Are there any tag along um, you know behaviors that in, in your experience with teenagers that are transitioning? Generally, no. Uh, but I've been a very strong uh, proponent of the proper care for people who are gender questioning and the fact that we have more people in America questioning their gender that might uh, raise questions of, of a possible transgender identity has been confusing, perplexing to a lot of people. Uh, there are some controversies swirling about it. Uh, there are some controversies swirling about whether all providers in America are observing the proper standards of care, which which dictate uh, a highly individualized, comprehensive biopsychosocial evaluation. That's a direct quote from the standard of care, by the way, before medicalizing. So, you know, my concern always is, have we, have we completely understood what all of what's going on with someone? And if we have not, we need to before we make decisions of this kind. Going through a gender transition uh, rivals any other behavioral change you could possibly think of. It's more comprehensive than most. It's all, it's all encompassing, and it changes everything about your life if you do it in a uh, what we used to call binary way, which is to say, a, a, a sex or gender that you you had when you were young. To we used to say the opposite gender. That that we don't use that language anymore. But in this case, if we're talking a natal female who was asserting a male gender identity and was going through that kind of transition, I would want to know all of what was going on and, and be very, very careful to make sure everything was getting addressed. And again, that's where the questions come in. I, I will tell you, everybody listening, I'm so appalled by people who are pontificating about this, that this means that you know young people shouldn't be allowed to transition or transgender people are dangerous or whatever. These are highly irresponsible uh, statements, but I've seen them, uh, some by pundits in the media, some by uh, celebrities on, on television. And I think you should all be cautious about drawing any conclusions. We'll have more information. Once we do, then we can have another discussion, more substantive discussion about it.
Yeah, I mean, the, the immense amount of pressure in that, even if it's just societal, right, when with somebody transitioning, I feel like, you know, it's got to be the most pressure that you could have as a teen that age. And I feel like that in and of itself, you know, requires care, right? It requires, it does. you know, it does. because it, it, that's too much for one person, I, in, in my opinion. But, you know, in, in looking at, you know, today before you guys came on and, and just looking at some of the stuff, you know, whether it be with school shootings or with transgender, uh, the transgender community itself is there's a pretty, you know, no matter what you look at, there's a pretty steep or a pretty sharp incline in the amount of people that are identifying as transgender, right? Yeah. Now, yes. you know, some people would say, you know, that's because it's encouraged. Other people would, in my opinion, other people would say it's because people feel more comfortable saying that they, that, you know, that they identify. It, how do you, do you approach that? What do you think? Do you, do you think there's a reason or do you think it's just more realistic with the numbers going up over the last five, six years? Well, it's, it's, it's multiple factors. Um, probably many of us who consider ourselves progressive are probably glad that people with sexual and gender minority identities are, are more readily accepted by society than it was was true in the past. It's less true for people who are transgender than for, for example, gay and lesbian people, but it's still, it's still better than it used to be. And so, you know, I've been an advocate for the population, so I'm, I'm happy about that. But that doesn't explain the whole thing. The rise in numbers, which have been confirmed by all kinds of important surveys, including the CDC, Williams Institute at UCLA, the Pew Research Foundation and a Gallup poll in the last uh, 18 months show that the younger generations have more and more uh, people who are exploring and asserting a, a sexual or gender minority label, way more than we would have expected. One of the things lost in the discussion is the fact that the group of people uh, doing this and asserting these identities are more heterogeneous than was true in the past. And this is something that has been pointed out by an important study in the United Kingdom and some health authorities in Europe, as well as some of us in the United States. So we, we need to understand that gender questioning or questioning of one's identity is a normal thing for people to do, particularly during their adolescence, because that's a period of rapid identity formation. But the numbers of people doing it insofar as gender uh, are surprising and maybe hard to reconcile with what we know historically. And there I would add a couple of other factors and I'll, I'll, I'll stop. One is we have just gone through, and it's not completely over, a pandemic which has forced social isolation on this group of teenagers um, and young adults in a way that never occurred before. Uh, deprived of ordinary social outlet at school for extended periods and in the neighborhoods, uh, kids have resorted to going online. And there we find some pretty disturbing things. There have been hearings in Congress and other places calling for an examination of what's going on with social media and its impact on, on teenagers in particular. Other surveys that ha have been done in the last uh, six months or so show that the mental health of teenagers in America is at its worst ever in history. We have more reported mental health problems with teenagers than we ever have before. And I think we can lay that in part on the ill effects of the pandemic and also the social isolation, as well as some pretty unfortunate things that are going on on social media that have been absorbed by kids. So with people that are trans, and who, who knows if that has anything to do with, you know, why this happened, right? But in this case, yes. Yeah, yeah, in this case. 
So, but you know, just overall, when when someone is uh, transitioning, what what kind of counseling do you give them? Uh, what kind of problems do they generally deal with? It, it, you know, I'm sure it's not a, a one size or one you know one size fits all. But what are the general things that that you that you um, you know that that you address when they are going through that process? Sure. Well, as a, as a gender psychologist, I want to take a comprehensive view of the individual, holistic view of the individual, and depends on their age. Um, their family circumstances or whether they're living independently. Um, there are some questions raised, I think, about the shooter in this case, about you know someone who's 28 years old still living at home or living at home again. It raises some red flags for me. Um, I, wanted, I want to understand what all has been going on with this person. What's their developmental trajectory been like? What has their experience been like socially? Um, have they had co-occurring or pre-existing mental health issues? Have they been adequately evaluated and treated? We don't know in this case with this, uh, this person. So we're, we're needing to be cautious if we're uh, approaching a gender transition to make sure that there aren't other factors that could make it more difficult for someone to achieve a gender transition, assuming that it's appropriate for them. And some people these days, I, th I would submit, have inappropriate expectations of what a gender transition will actually do. There's no scientific evidence that a gender transition will cure a depression, will change someone from being on the autism spectrum to not having autism. It will not uh, heal necessarily uh, a trauma, whether it's from abuse or some other kind of trauma. And so we, we have to consider all of those factors. We do know that for young people in particular, teenagers and young adults, one of the factors that is protective for people who are trans and going through a transition is family support. So if a family is supportive of someone and is accepting of their uh, authentic identity, that's very good. Again, raising questions in this case with this shooter about what was going on between the person and, and their family. I was very disturbed to learn that the shooter had been a student at that school, presumably uh, at, the, at the appropriate age for students in that school. The shooter was tw is 28 years old. The school goes up to sixth grade, uh, 12 years old. So this shooter attended the school 16 or more years ago. So we have to ask ourselves if they had a grievance about the school for some reason or another, which I'm speculating they probably did, to carry that grievance and that resentment all that time without any uh, 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 improvement in it is a very disturbing uh, factor. No, and, and, you know, you add in that, you know, let's say they did hold that grievance for that long uh, and, they, and they wanted to go out, you know, they were poorly treated or, or felt they couldn't express themselves, whatever it is. You probably wouldn't target the the, the children, right? You may probably kind of err towards the faculty itself, right? Because right. that's 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 probably who you would have held that grievance with. The, the children themselves had, had had no part in you know that person's exactly. experience. Exactly. No, these these children would not have even been students there when when the shooter was a student there. Yeah, maybe not some most not even alive, right? Not so, even alive, exactly. To, to when you go through this, when someone's transitioning and, and you're counseling, do most actually go through the whole transition process, or do people, you know, somewhere in between, change, you know, their 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 emotions change or or how they identify changes? Do most carry all the way through, or do you find that most explore that explore that route and then and then kind of pull back? How, how so does that, that generally work? 
That's a really good question and a really open one in that we used to think that people who came forward, particularly for care, whether it's psychological care or medical care, would, would in fact follow up and, and go on med- uh, gender-affirming medicines and, and even in many cases get gender-affirming surgeries. A recent uh, report uh, that was done uh, showed that, that the current uh, group of, of adults who are self-identified as transgender, for the most part, have not taken hormones. This, in part, is because we have sort of new categories across the gender spectrum of identities that we consider uh, transgender, including the one that most of you know, the non-binary gender fluid category. Many people who use those those terms don't seek uh physical changes through hormones. So not everybody uses hormones. A small, even smaller proportion of people uh, end up having surgeries because it's a, it's a significant and irreversible uh, thing to do. Um, and, and then we have the question of, you know, well, do people seem to think that they're transgender for a period of time at least, and then, and then change their minds? And we have now a Another development, which is kind of confusing things, and that is we have a larger and larger number of people who uh, say that they've been on this road to to be transgender and have had some form of affirmation, whether it's uh, just social or medical, and then have changed their minds. The the category I'm talking about is people who now are called detransitioners or desisters. We don't know very much about them. Uh, we believe that in the past there weren't very much, very many of them, and I'm worried that there are going to be more of them because of what I've characterized as the inadequate or sloppy uh, evaluation process that too many uh, uh, gender question people get. You know, Dr. Anderson, uh, you and I spoke a little bit this morning when I was asking you to come on the show, um, but I mentioned... I'm bisexual. When I was younger and I was a teenager, I was that tomboy. I was the one that wanted to cut off all my hair because my mom made me put them in braids. I wanted to be climbing trees. I never wanted to put on a skirt. And as a non-clinical person looking at this and seeing the number of young, young people who are thinking that they want to transition, I look at myself and think, gosh, if... I had been born now, would Mm -hmm. I have been encouraged to go that direction? Whereas I am very, very happy that I'm in, I am the person I am now. And it took me a while, you know, when I was a teenager, I mean, I was, most of my girlfriends and I, we were, at first we didn't want any boys to like us. We didn't want them to see our boobs. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and then as you get older, you start to feel more comfortable. And it wasn't until I was really in my 30s that I finally figured it all out. So yeah, yeah. it's it's frustrating to, to see so many young people. I feel like just yelling at them saying, wait, just wait. Yeah, There's time. Yeah, yeah. Miss Robin, I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of people I talk to are share the same concern that that there's there, rather than being more accepting of gender variance, some segments of society are even reinforcing uh, conformity to traditional gender roles. So if you're an effeminate boy, uh, you know before puberty, you know people ask, you know, they used to ask if you were gay. Now they ask if you're if you're trans. And some people, some of the influencers on social media, TikTok and 
and YouTube and Instagram. Tell these kids, if you're uncomfortable with your body, well, then maybe you're in the wrong body and you're trans. Now, I don't know about the people listening, all the people listening, but it sounds like you and I, Ms. Rabbit, have similar experiences going through puberty, which is it's an uncomfortable time. It's a really confusing time. And a lot of people are asking themselves, well, where do I fit? And how do I feel about myself? And, and maybe more problematic, how do I compare with others? One of the things I've been talking about the last couple of years is the um, bombardment that young people get of visual images of others who they uh, see a lot or celebrities or look up to. And, and they are all sculpted and, you know, and, and uh, uh, performing uh, in in some ways, I'm going to pick on the Kardashians because it's so easy. Um, the Kardashians, you know, show what it's like to be a young female, and of course, it's all fake. It's just all fake. So the 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 poor kid who is uncomfortable going through puberty and thinking, you know, gosh, I've got I've ac- acne and I'm awkward and I'm not sure people like me and you know, and if somebody gives them a an an easy solution, well, just Make a gender transition, and then you won't have to worry about whether you're attractive or whether the quote opposite sex thinks you're cute or fun or whatever. It's a it's a false it's a false promise, and too many young people uh, are entertaining it. Yes. Well, I'm also very happy to introduce Dom Luker, um, who just joined us. He if. You, everybody that's listening does not who know who he is. Um, it's at Dom underscore Luker, L-U-C-R-E. He, uh, you absolutely should follow him. He is a journalist who has been able to uncover and thread together amazing narratives and the research that he has done on so many different topics, including um, mass shootings and gender transitioning and all this other stuff is uh, very, very informative. Um, welcome, Dom. Thank you for the beautiful introduction. Uh, honored to be here. And I believe Dom's from the um, from the Tennessee area as well. Uh, so, you know, I'm curious how that affected the community that he's in and, you know, how close he was to everything that happened. Well, I know the, I know um, the people that know the pastor that was affected, the structures, and uh, all of the families that were affected. I know everyone that was tied to him. But, Tennessee is a little bit different from other states. They aren't really, uh, well, even though that we are like the home of country, they aren't really too Hollywood. So a lot of the stuff is just being done privately and quietly. They don't really want any attention either, the families. the As far as the funding, they have all the funding they need. Everyone has, well, indeed, over six figures. Every family that was affected, they have over 100000 each at this point from their donations. Uh, but... We were going to organize a candlelight and things like that, but they reclined. They don't want any of that type of attention or media attention for it. But outside of that, the community, you wouldn't even tell it happened. Really? Yeah, you wouldn't. That's just not how Tennessee really is. Now, to, to you know, uh, Miss Robin had given you, you know, an introduction, but you know, if you could, if you could explain a little bit more about you know what, what you what you do and, and the voice that you have, obviously you have quite a large following and, and it, it's due to what you bring to light. Can you give a little bit about a little background about yourself? Yeah, I drop these uh, informative threads and the first tweet is normally bait. So it'll be the narrative that I'm trying to break. So it could be something as simple as proof that the 2020 election was the most secure election of all time. 
and the entire career would be dedicated to proving that the election was stolen. But I cite everything. And my citations aren't just like right side media. I'll cite a good bit of left. I'll cite their most notable uh, references as well to make it where it's irrefutable, to where they can't say, well, it's just a hit piece of nothing but Fox News. I make it very hard. I use their most notable sources to also incorporate in my thread. I use them to help me break their narratives. And so on this topic itself, right, you know, given your background, and you know, I had done quite a bit of research on you and reached out to you earlier today. You know, part of it is we're talking about, you know, the, the narrative from the media right when something like this happens, right? Immediately goes to gun violence and immediately goes to, in this case, the, the shooter being from the transgender community. Uh, you know, I'm curious as, as to your take on, you know, not just what happened, but, it, you know, in your scope, how, how could something like this be avoided or how would you address this, um, you know, personally? How would you address this if you could make decisions as to, you know, buffering against a tragedy like this happening? I would use statistics to first base some type of scenario. I would look at the places that have armed security and the type of uh, attempts that they have opposed to those that don't, and the numbers will prove that they most likely should have armed security there. That would be the first point. Then I would add metal detectors for all schools. I don't see no point for not having that. I mean, what's wrong with you, you know, growing up, understanding how a metal detector works? It's fine. They go in courthouses and airplanes all the time, so they can have a metal detector at their school and clear book bags. Every book bag should be clear. Um, those three things is, is a start. As far as the media pushing it, the media is just pushing this, not necessarily just gun control this time. You can see they're not really too much pushing gun control. It's the people around them, yeah. The media right now is just pushing transgender stuff. So they're they're trying to just like trigger conservatives and gaslight them into overreacting because they need another J6 scenario. We got them dead to rights. We have 2024 in the back. But if they can make some type of uh, radical scenario and make us look bad, they could implement all kind of laws to restrict our voting rights. Understood. Understood. Oh, I, I was I was interested, Daquan. You know, from you, you know you, your perspective on this and what your organization does. You know, same same thing that I just asked Dom. What 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 kind of actions do you think would really have the most you know ROI? What do you think would would really you know change the scenario and 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 make things a little bit safer without you know without you know gun control from your perspective being a major part of that? Yeah. Um... You know, the biggest thing, the biggest issue that I've been seeing a lot in these mass shootings and in shootings in general that involve, you know, young, young people um, is, is we need to, one, hold parents accountable and empower them to be parents. Um, you know, parents should be able to, like, I actually place into a conversation I had uh, actually just this morning um, on an Alabama radio station, um, but you know, no parent should allow, specifically in the, in the context of my of my little brother's situation, is no parent should allow their kids to go to school not knowing what their kid has in their backpack, right? Um, you know, I grew up, and uh, like like Dom was saying, uh, I grew up in a school where you had to go to metal detectors, and you know, truthfully, uh, I hated it. I like, I, I it made me feel, you know, like I was doing something wrong. Um, and, you know, like not to say that that isn't a solution, but to say that, you know, I felt less than, especially when I went to the, the schools in a wealthier neighborhood and, um, 
you know, they, they were, they were free, you know, they were doing, they were doing things. They had classes that I didn't have. They had, you know, all these different freedoms that I feel like I just did. I just couldn't have because I'm, you know, a poor kid from the South side of Chicago. Um, but I, I, I want to focus in on the solution being co- building a community and, and give, encouraging parents to be parents, right? Having conversations with your with your children, with you, with those around you, we think that the solutions to all of these major problems are really complex. And it's not life is not complex. Life is simple. The solutions that we need are simple and they start internally in the home. They start with, with supporting and encouraging one another, uh, building one another up so that we don't feel as though as we, we need to displace our anger onto other people. Um, listening to one another when we're, when we're, when we're, sharing what's on our hearts and what what's going on with us um more than anything it's a personal issue and i think so many times in these in these tragedies and in these scenarios we're so quick to put to put the blame on someone else and it's like we all share a piece of the blame when we refuse to acknowledge one another's humanity and support one another as a person right uh and be there for one another but more importantly when parents try to push the responsibility of being a parent onto the school and onto the government. That's not their responsibilities. It is the responsibility of a parent to be a parent. And you are a parent until you're, until you die, not until your kid becomes 18 and not until your kid moves out of your house. You are a parent until you die. You have that responsibility until you die. And so, you know, the solution isn't a legislative one. It's, it's one of common sense. It sounds like it's, it's almost like a reeducation of communities. Absolutely. That it's not just, you know, it can't be handed down by legislation. It, it needs to be a ground roots effort of re-educating communities to care about the correct things. Because um, I know that living in Philadelphia for a long time, uh, it was a look the other way kind of attitude. Whereas the community needs to come together and say, no, we're not going to put up with this. And that it's okay to actually speak up and yes. we need to somehow lose that fear. And I also want to just really quick note um, uh, the statistic for mass shooting. It says that it's four or more people. I think it's really sad that we do not acknowledge that that happens almost on a daily basis in Chicago and other places like it. And yet they're not called mass shootings. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, mass, the, the mass shootings then, and I, and I'm, I don't mean to offend anybody, but the term mass shootings didn't really start catching on until it started happening to white people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Until it started really happening in white communities. You know, for a long time, everybody watched the Columbine situation, right? And that was the the quote-unquote first mass shooting, uh, the term mass shooting. I remember being in elementary school and watching that. And I'm like, yo, you know, my cousin is in high school down the street and somebody was just shooting at the school yesterday. Like, that's like, and, and, and I want y'all to understand, like, I grew up in an amazing community. I grew up in, I had a fun childhood, but there was the reality of gun violence that kind of became second nature to us. Right. Um, and you know, these things were happening on a daily basis, but the moment it started to affect, you know, higher class, wealthy, white, white people, then it became something that we need to put a name on it. Something that we need to monitor something that we need to do something about. Right. But mass shootings, quote unquote, four or more people literally happen every day. They happen probably every couple hours in Chicago. 
Yeah, Daquan and, and Dom as well, just because coming from, from a black male's perspective is, you know, when, when shootings happen, whether it be in Chicago or, you know, a statistic, which, you know, with, uh, you know, inner city crime being high, obviously higher than the areas outside of it. You know, it's not politically correct to bring those up. I think a lot of times, you know, the media steers clear of that. But to me, you know, that that's more of a, you know, a racist stance than, than actually talking about the issue, because it's almost as though it doesn't matter as much, right? It's just another inner city crime and it's not given, it's not given the attention that, you know, something when it happens at a school or when it happens in a, in, in a predominantly white community, how does that look from your perspective? I, I'm just, you know, guessing what it would feel like, but I, I would assume that, you know, like you said, you know, no one started paying attention until it happened in white communities. I think people think it's the polit- politically correct thing to do, but it's also diminishing the value of, of another life. Yeah, no, you, you're, you're right. Um, I definitely have these, uh, internal moments where, you know, when stuff like this happens, I immediately look at the, the, the crime stats in Chicago. Um, and I, and not even just Chicago, cause you know, Chicago gets a bad rap for, yes, it is a very, you know, certain places can be very dangerous, but it's an amazing city. But anytime there's a mass tragedy and, you know, three or four or five people, you know, lose their lives my immediate thought is how many people lost their lives and they're not getting, you know, as, ne- as nearly of a t- uh, much attention, how many homicides are going unsolved? You know, what happened to me and what happened to my cousin, um, just three months after I was shot and, you know, I'm still, was still in physical therapy and I was learning to walk again. My cousin was murdered behind the church we grew up in. Um, by the, by later, actually I found out last year, that both of our shootings were connected, um, you know, five years later. Um, but I think about how neither one of our cases are solved, how we put, we put all this attention, time, resource, and money, not to say that it's not warranted into those things. Yet we allow like terrible leadership to thrive in our cities and promote policies that are soft on crime that lead to more, and more crime, less and less solves. You know, uh, I think the last time I checked, the the, the homicide solve rate um, in Chicago was less than thirty percent. That means more more than seventy percent of the homicides that happen, they get away. They get away with. And you know, the last thing I'll say on it is, you know, when I was shot, um, you know, the the police officers told us they like we don't we don't have a good description of the guy. Chances are we might not catch him, right? But then when my cousin was killed. They the the officers told my family. They said there are three things that's going to happen. They said the police are going to cut on a clock in a ton of overtime, quote unquote, um, investigating. They're going to come up with no leads. That's going to be the second thing. And the third thing is they're going to wait until every person of interest is either dead or in jail on another on another um, charge, and then they're going to close the case. And last year, that's what happened. Um, two of the boys were were killed. Uh, and two of them are, are in jail on other things. And, you know, the case was deemed closed even because every person of interest died. Right. Um, and the solution to all of this is is really focusing in on building that community. And that's what it all comes back to. Um, that is like unbelievable. I, I can't even believe that they wouldn't care like that. Like, like to, to, to build, I think that there's also a sense of perfect purposelessness that, that young people are kind of feeling that's like leading to this. We're, we're looking, you know, a lot of, 
you know, people like getting these advanced degrees, doing all this work, all this stress is kind of like piling up and piling up and it should be addressed. So, yeah. By the way, that was Ariel Nation, um, who had a, I believe, Ariel, you you also had a question, correct? Uh, I had a question. Um, yeah, just kind of like in general, like why are our politicians not addressing this kind of sense of boredom and personal, per, like purposelessness in like young people, you know, everything has to be about the culture war or trans or this. But my biggest deal when I, uh, I came from kind of like a relatively wealthy family, even went to like good colleges was that even in the 0809 recession, minimum wage jobs weren't even hiring. And we, we just couldn't find our place, but, but this is this not is something. Not that's addressed yeah I'll, I'll, I'll talk i'll touch on that um so for context uh to what i'm about to say um after my cousin died the last conversation i ever had with him um he was visiting me after i got out of the hospital and we were talking about our, our upbringing we both were raised in the exact same home we we shared a room for 15 years um and a bed for probably like three years before we got our own beds um, you know, so we were like brothers more than, more than anything. And having had the same upbringing, uh, at some point we diverged, uh, past, you know, and he identified that there was a sense of, of, like you said, per like lack of purpose that at some point in his life, he felt like he didn't amount to anything and he felt like he didn't have a purpose. So he was kind of in a state of perpetual survival. Right. And toward the end of his life, he had been making the proper changes. Uh, he had made tremendous changes actually, um, toward really trying to figure out what his purpose was. So that conversation after he died, my family and I were trying to realize where we went wrong and we identified that. Um, and we were able to put, to, to look at that and find out that that is a, a very common, you know, um, view among my community and specifically talking about the community I grew up in Chicago where a lot of young people, specifically young men, like are just in a state of survival because they don't feel like they have a purpose. So one of the things that we did is we created a nonprofit um, called uh, Project 26 that focuses on developing entrepreneurship um, and teaching young men how to have a purpose and live out their purpose beyond 26 because uh, my cousin died at the age of 26 um, and, and giving them that purpose through entrepreneurship and owning the community instead of just living in it and being and, and allowing it to, you know, dictate how they how their lives. Um, that's the way you solve the lack of purpose is giving people something to do um, and giving people a meaning and reason and reason, you know, in our communities. We talk all the time about the inequities that, that exist in our communities. And and the way you get around it is if you don't have an opportunity, you create an opportunity. Right. Um, and that's a large, if you look at the whole, you know, 2020, uh, social justice movement, what, what a lot of people were saying, there were a lot of things that I, that I agree with a lot of things that I didn't, but one of the things that came out of it is people were saying that, that, that there needs to be greater opportunity uh, for, for black Americans and less barriers to entry. Right. Um, and the way that I've seen it done best is that, you know, if every door is closing, you know, you bulldoze, you bulldoze your way out or you bulldoze your way in 
and you enter that market on your own. You create your own business. Uh, you 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 start an enterprise. You 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 invest. You started you know NFT. You you invest in the stock market. Like you find a way to get out. And so and giving people the resources to do so. That is how we change that. Government can only do so much. I want to stress that. I stress I work with government officials on a daily basis. Like I'm on Capitol Hill often, right? Government can only do so much. And we in America put way too much faith and way too much responsibility for our own lives and our elected officials. It is not their job to, to get us to start a business. They they help make the mean, make it easier and regulate the, you know, the economy and the government. But the, on the decision to do it, the, the responsibility is on each and every one of us. And if we give, if we give our fellow man that opportunity, opportunity, we can help change it. Daquan, Daquan I, you, sorry, go ahead, I, Robin. Um, I, I believe, Dom, I saw a thread of yours maybe a couple months back. And I also saw Mike Rowe talk about this, that um, for black men, the... Um, uh, the public schools back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, when they started taking away all of the technical shop classes, plumbing classes, all the stuff that gave them skills for immediately after high school because not everybody could afford to go to college. It really kind of like cut the legs out from under them because suddenly they did not have skills. They didn't have, they had no way to go to training. And um, these classes that were a standard amongst all schools were suddenly gone. That's true. That is, that is, that is a hundred percent true. You know, schools, especially in minority black communities, uh, many times are underfunded, under-resourced and those types of programs, you know, historically, and even to this day are the first to be cut. They're the first to be removed out. And for many people, you know, like college isn't, uh, isn't an option for everybody and it shouldn't be an option for everybody. Right. Like, if you don't want to go to college, you shouldn't be forced to do it, but you should have exposure to the other high paying opportunities that exist without a college degree. You know, um, and many people in like God think about my community. While we did have some automotive classes, we had some entry level engineering classes. Um, you know, they were not nearly as in depth or as equipped as some of the other schools. Um, or in the uh, surrounding districts. Um, and many people felt that, okay, if I want to learn this thing, like one of my nephews, um, he was telling me he wants to be an entrepreneur and he's like, I got to go to college to be an entrepreneur. And I told him, I was like, I'm like, yeah, you should go to college if you want to go to college, but you can start a business now at 15 years old and be, be, become a successful entrepreneur without, you know, spending that time and money going to college. If it's not what you really want to do. Um, but many people in the community don't have those resources anymore. So you you had mentioned opportunity, the social landscape changing, and you know society being more accepting of um, you know anybody that's transitioning or, or identifies other than their you know other than their biological uh, gender. Do you think that the, the you know does that present more opportunities? Do you see that going up as well now that it's more um, accepted and now that it's more mainstream and not, uh, you know, ridiculed as much. Do you see the, do you see an upswing in opportunities for people that are transitioning? Well, I, I hope so. I hope that, uh, that society is more accepting of people whose identity is different than a conventional identity uh, and that it's more about talent 
than identity. Um, but I, 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 can't, I can't say, frankly. Uh, the numbers of people who are identifying in, in these ways as a sexual or gender minority label are way up. And uh, we've never had it before. We, we, you know, we used to think that transgender people were, you know, less than one percent of the population. But these surveys I referred to earlier are showing that for teenagers, you know, as many as twenty percent of teenagers are saying that their sexual or gender identity is different than straight uh, or cisgender. So, you know, we're in uncharted territories. Uh, uh, honestly, I, I do, I do, I want to say. My experience, which is pretty significant with gender variant, gender questioning people, is that many of them are, are very uh, willing to kind of have sort of a creative approach to life in general. Uh, they're capable of thinking abstractly. I mean, anybody who switches gender obviously has to be able to go beyond conventional thinking. Um, so, you know, I hope, I hope eventually that... Um, you know, the opportunities for trans people will be better. Historically, however, that has not been the case. You know, trans people have been discriminated against uh, as uh, other uh, people have, and you know, in various minorities and, uh, and discriminated against in pretty significant ways in employment, housing, uh, healthcare, and other opportunities. So I hope things are changing. Dr. Anderson, I actually wanted to, we were talking about changing minds. I think that what I have seen myself over the last 20 years uh, is more and more acceptance. Uh, the younger generation, even more so, my children who are in their 20s, um, to them, they're just other, they're normal people, uh, which is mm -hmm. as, as it should be. Um, mm -hmm. I see a danger, and I don't know if you agree with me, I see a danger with this sort of radical push um, that is pushing it beyond what makes sense to me that it's almost making a lot of people rather than this, this more and more acceptance, it's actually taking several steps back. Well, that's a really interesting comment slash question. And what I'll say in response is I have seen some pretty crazy thinking and actions from some people who would consider themselves uh, very much in the trans community. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's a bit inflammatory, but I have had the experience of hearing some trans young people say that they think uh, hormones should be over-the-counter medications. Uh, I've also had some uh, trans female uh, pe young people say that they think they should be able to go in, in any restroom they, they wish and operate the way they wish, including, in some cases, trans female people who have not had gender confirmation surgery, so they still have a penis, who want to be able to um, go into a women's restroom, go into the stall, and stand up peeing. Now, for those who are female on the call, who, who have been in w women's restrooms many times, uh, you can clearly hear the difference between somebody who's peeing standing up and somebody who's peeing sitting down. And I think it's a horrible idea to push the limits of uh, acceptance beyond what is in any reasonable way appropriate. And I've, I've seen it start happening, including the shout downs from trans activists of 
speeches by uh, women in uh, in at rallies to to talk about women's rights, who have done some pretty crazy, crazy things. You know, like taking their shirts off and waving their tits at the speakers and shouting down and and trying to s- silence uh, speaking by people that they don't agree with. I I don't I can't condone that. Well. You know, personally, I make a lot of noise because I do have a penis and I pee sitting down. So if you're anywhere near me, you, you know, you're definitely going to hear what I'm doing. But yeah, I, I see yeah, <laughs> I, I see that we have Asia up and she had her hand up for quite a while. Uh, I wanted to turn it over to her to, to see what she had to say. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bryn. And glad, glad you're back. Um, this is a really he- heavy and delicate space. And I want to say hats off to you. For, I, have a, I have a lot to say. Um, this is such a polarizing topic and the mice media crew and Robin now in the two biggest spaces that I've seen you do, one was on COVID and the vaccinations. And now we're talking about weaponization of school shootings and this is educational, it's compassionate and it's informative. I mean, like this is impossible. So I just, I, I'm, I applaud you for bringing this group of people together. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is Daquan, I'm a Chicago Southsider too. I, I'm just so grateful that you're here. I applaud you. I'm so glad for you speaking the truth that you are speaking. Uh, I'd love to learn more about, uh, your nonprofit and everything you said, just, it, 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 it's, it's, it's like choking me up. Um, I, I can't speak to your experience and everything you went through, but um, you and I both know that it is really something you have to claw your way out of and it, it can be done. And there are siblings that don't and there are siblings that do. And, you know, then at the end of the day, the family blames himself. You know, where did we go wrong? Why did one person choose this lane? Why did they get the opportunity or how did they pull themselves out? And how did the other person not? Um, it's very complex. I'm also really glad that you brought up the difference between what a mass shooting means um, in terms of how it's portrayed in the media and the frightful reality that that happens every day on the south side of Chicago. Um, because we're talking about, you know, the, this, um, you know, what the, the, the current event, um, I did want to also add that in, in respect to this latest event, I, 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 I love um, what Dr. Anderson is saying um, when you were first speaking that, you know, you hope that this doesn't, um, you know, dissuade people from, you know, choosing their path, whatever it is, you know, trans, non-trans. Um, I, I don't think that, I, I think that the event and how it was executed, the anger, I think that comes from anger, depression, despair, societal isolation. Um, and that, that can be a dark form in and of itself outside of um, the, the trans journey, if, if I can say that. So I, I think that uh, the other thing that you mentioned, um, that she went back to a school that she attended, and it only goes to sixth grade and she was 28. That's very telling. 
So I think that that speaks in general to how things stick with us. There's a root trauma there. I think she went back there for a reason. Well, actually, we can we can probably speculate on all sorts of things. Uh, Dom, I believe he, uh, he mentioned that he knows a lot of the people and knows the community. And um, I, we can all be, you know, speculation on on and, and pretend that we understand it a little bit. Obviously, there's trauma there to for somebody to be motivated to do something like that. There has to be something really dark for them to go to a place like that, no matter who they are, whether male, female, white, black. Uh, trans or not, um, something has to have triggered it deep down inside for them to do something which on the surface is so evil, uh, especially when there's children involved. Um, I think I read, and Dom, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, yes, she went to school there, but there were family members and other that, that were part of the, the church that she still attended. Her mother and father perhaps were, were, um, church, uh, patrons and they might've had ties to the school itself. So there might've been a lot of things going on, not necessarily just because she went to school there. Oh, Tom, I see your hand up, brother. You need, Dom, you need to, yeah. What's the, uh, what's the, uh, what's the uh, speculation that people are having? I see something that people with the shoes, like, what is it that people are questioning? No, they were talking. The, the speculation is that it, something happened, must have happened when she was still going to school there when she was younger, and that's how come she chose that location. People to saying go back that because to. it's they're saying that because from 2002 to 2012 there was a molestation uh, situation that was going on with that that school that was covered up through uh-huh. our judge down in Tennessee, and people are alluding that they think that she was connected with it, but no, she would have stated that, and the people around her would have stated it, like uh, even in a death note she would have put that. Plus, she was targeting another location. This is that the school didn't have no security. She went there, so she knew it was like you know, not uh, it was safe for her to do what she wanted to. It wasn't like that was the first place that she was targeting, so it wasn't. I just know people that did search that they're not going to go out and tell people because there's no way you can link it to her. So people will just say, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." I'm sure there was some, you know, they, they put it out there that something happened. But there, if you look to it, yeah, that was, it was it was covered up. There was molestation charges, uh, pretty bad. It's also before that new pastor got there, too. It stopped after 2012. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what people are pretty much alluding to with that. With the shoes, the shoes were the same shoes the whole time. It was the lighting. Even when the person was on the ground, if you look at it before the sun hits it, the shoes look completely pitch black. And then the sun hit it, it's colorful. For those those cameras that don't know what Dom's talking about, there was uh, a bunch of people that posted online that there was, there was no way that this was the same person that, uh, or that the video of her going into the building ahead of time was somebody else. And that this was all doctored because according to them, they looked at the shoes from the, from the um, video of her going into the building versus the video from the um, body cam and that the shoes looked a different color. Um, and Dom actually broke it down really, really well, showing that when you zoom in from the body cam, that the shoes look black and white. But then when you zoom in further, all of a sudden the, the color of the van's shoes comes forward in the picture. So, And also with the camera that's up top, people got to understand with angles and lighting. So that camera, it wasn't appropriately lighting. It's got school lighting. 
And then those cameras are designed for facial recognition. They ain't really too much to that much of an identifier. Not with that, you know. Those cameras are just to keep track of what's going on for school fights. Really, it ain't state of the art technology. People got to understand and live in reality with it. Now, in terms of the media and the propaganda, yeah, the media is not a false flag. But this is the thing that make people think everything is a false flag. Is that the media? are some of the greatest uh, business minds of all time, so they know how to capitalize off any scenario. No matter how tragic or beautiful it might be, they are going to capitalize. So they'll capitalize and they might create a narrative or create some type of hate or disdain amongst people, and it'll lead people to think that they were behind it all. They're just great at reacting is all. Sometimes they are behind some stuff. Yeah, they do set up a lot of stuff like J6, you know, that was completely orchestrated. But you have scenarios that are natural, but they still react perfectly. And people are like, oh, man, they were setting it all up. No, these are professionals. They're professionals. They know how to, uh, to, to you know, to hone any story and make it profitable for them. They got the resources. They got the person on Instagram taking off. People got to understand. They say, oh, this person might have been, uh, what is it? Um, what is it that they say? Um, MK Ultra. Problem being, our CIA isn't sloppy. You're not about to uh, send no one that's quote unquote has MK Ultra out to do no assassinations and they have the Instagram up and you got to take it down after everyone find them. Like, that's too sloppy, man. CIA isn't going to move like that. You don't even know that person exists. Let's be real. So, yeah, I mean, the conspiracy uh, theories are absolutely crazy uh, when you look at anything like that because, it, I, I, and I think that they've gotten even worse as people have lost more and more faith from yeah, mainstream, that's the problem. mainstream media. Yeah, media did it themselves. It ain't like people just went back, you know, as crazy or nothing. It's the media. It's their fault because, I mean, you ain't got nothing to trust. Well, this is why Mice is here because Mice Media is determined. And this is this is how why we are doing what we're doing is because we want to ensure that we are giving open discussions, both all sides, um, and then we're not pushing a narrative. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more that the entire time Don's talking, I'm circling the same thing. You know, when, when I watched, I think probably every news clip or every video clip that came out from any of these corporate or from any of these media networks. And, you know, you get someone like Dom who, you know, I would classify to an extent like a citizen journalist, right? He, he, he reports on what he sees. And so often that perspective and, you know, being close to a story like he is, provide so much more clarity than it being reported on from across the country by a larger studio network. So, you know, I, I appreciate what Dom does and, you know, look forward to, you know, more people like himself and him himself as well, having a stage to, you know, be able to show what, what they see and be able to communicate their narrative. Because I think this is, this is where the juice is and this is where you can actually kind of get down and, and learn more about the variables that you wouldn't know if you were, you know, a thousand miles away or a hundred miles away, which is a lot, which is often where these these stories are being reported from. And, and also they say that if it bleeds, it leads. So that's all they care about. It's like, how, how can we magnify the carnage instead of just talk about like what was going through this person's head or how this could have happened or what's the evidence? It's just carnage, carnage. How can we get that? And, you know, like when, like when my entire generation is being smeared as just like lazy kind of people who, you know, don't want to work by the media sometimes, it's actually not that. It's actually because a lot of people in my generation didn't get proper education and guidance, like from their families or from their schools. And it's 
it's like, take it from me. Like I've been uh, like, I don't have to worry about rent or kind of like grocery expenses, but there's only so much fun you can have just staying home and playing video games and watching TV. But, but a lot of times, like a lot of jobs out there are also very purposeless. They're repetitive. They're, they don't bring you any kind of sense of like what, what we talked about. So it's like, they don't talk about like, okay, let's talk about like, what can we do about the purposeless of these jobs? Or maybe, maybe young people didn't have like good guidance counselors or good role models in their lives. They never want to talk about that part. They just want to stroke with a broad brush and just say, oh, they're just lazy. They just have behavioral problems and all this stuff, but they never talk to us. They just talk amongst themselves about us without ever talking to us. And I think that's absolutely disgusting and they should be ashamed. Um, before we continue talking, I want to open it up just really quick. If anybody has any questions of our fabulous panelists, um, I we, we have time where we've already been on for 90 minutes, so we don't have that much time left, but I would like to open it up for any more questions, maybe like two or three. Um, I see NC Third Eye. Um, has a question. Yes, Thomas. I just wanted to say I really appreciate your threads. It's really brave of you. Keep it up. Thank you so much. Nice. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> that was short and sweet. Um, is there anybody else that would like to raise their hand um, before we tie this up at the end? This has been absolutely amazing. Um, and I think that there's there's like the topic was school shootings and the the um, politicization of it, but there's so many different components, you know, uh, there's that, that it's, it's almost like the banning guns topic itself. There's no one answer. There's there. And that's a, one of the things that politicians really want to do is that they just want to throw it in your face. Like if you just do this, it'll all be fixed. And unfortunately that's not how the world works. Their um, school choice would make a difference. Personally, I think that um, we should not have all of our taxes go just to your school district. It should all go into one pot, and then everything gets distributed so that every single school has the exact same amount of money to deal with. I think that that would be a lot more fair. Um, and but but that's just one part of the problem is with people with with kids upbringing, um, and. This is so many conversations to be had that obviously are not going to happen tonight. I don't see any more questions coming up on Twitter spaces. So, um, Bryn. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, reflecting what you just said, I think it's, this is another example where, you know, we brought a lot of different angles and perspectives and backgrounds all onto one round table to discuss something relevant, which is touchy. I think which Ashi has said too, is, you know, it's a deep topic. And again, even, even the people coming with, with different backgrounds and, you know, different approaches to, to life elsewhere. Uh, I think we we're able to have a really fruitful conversation, which was, which was excellent. I know, I know that I learned a lot and, you know, very thankful to Daquan, to Dr. Erica, as well as Dom for coming up and Asia and Ariel for, 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 you know, contributing. And this is exactly what we'll do every week. You know, we, we, we took that month off and, and now we're back and this was an, an excellent first show. And again, you know, largely, largely due to the panel that came up here as well as, as the community that came out. So just a big thank you to everybody and uh, look forward to seeing you guys again next week. I really appreciate it. Dom, I see your hand up, brother. 
Yeah, I just have one last thing. Thanks for having me join. But everyone, make sure you have to uh, stay alert and stay vigilant because vigilant. I meant because uh, they're going to be coming out of us in ways of social engineering. Like I said, they need more than anything another J six. If they don't get that, there's nothing that they could do to uh, stop a Republican president in 2024. It's it's known, it's known, it's undeniable. They've already lost, and they couldn't arrest Donald Trump, so they couldn't even make the race wars. They failed at all fronts. They tried to make the race war with the blacks versus whites that failed. They tried to make it with Hispanics versus the whites that failed. They tried to make it with the blacks versus the Asians that failed. Now they're currently trying to do it with the LGBTQ community and conservatives because they want to label us just as a hate group. They're going to switch it and act like, you know, this never happened. They're trying to constantly push it to somehow some conservative somewhere would do something or react in some way. Is like I tell people just to stay alert, to resist, but don't overreact because that's fuel for their fight. And Dom, I agree. And I, I think it's, it's work for, from people like you. I think it's, it's the collection of voices pulled together from citizen journalists from people, you know, having a platform to say what they think and what they see that really battles against, you know, as I, I agree with you, it's, it, we're, I think regardless of, of, you know, uh, you know, political back or political affiliation or ideology, they're going to, they're going to push you into a corner to try to put a label on you. So it's nice and neat so they can deliver it up into the election. And I think that's why it's so important to have varied voices coming out. And I think we're getting there. I think, you know, every, every year, every, every month, we're getting more and more people that are getting their news and getting their information from something like Twitter or a platform where there is an alternative uh, truth or an, an alternative uh, viewpoint. So I appreciate what you do. And uh, Phil, we can exit with you, brother. Yeah, thanks. Um, cheers, Brent. I just wanted to back up what uh, Dom was saying there. You know, like the, uh... Phil does that for himself every time he speaks, <laughs> e- even when it's not a Twitter space. Yeah, thanks, mate. Cheers. It's a bit <laughs> premature. <laughs> um, yeah, so just to back up what Dom was saying, um, you know, the fra- fractionalization of society, basically, uh, and obviously that, that very combative uh, mechanism within the media, how they're pitching off different groups against each other. Um, it's almost in a way, you know, it, it actually, if you look at everything that's been spoken about tonight, from uh, parental control, the educational system, you know, state policing or state parenting, that type of thing. It's it's almost, you know, the removal of um, critical thinking, which I honestly think is extremely important um, for us moving forward, especially within the, uh, the media landscape. So we need to obviously invoke critical uh, thinking and obviously promote it in, in, in such a, a profound way that it has to come back um, so that people obviously can recognise what's going on. So that's probably my only take. I would have... Um, yeah, as living over in, here in Australia, we have obviously a very uh, different different viewpoint on guns and, and and what's actually happened over here in the past. But um, I won't draw any of that back up. But um, thank you to all the guests that came up and obviously contributed and the questions. And yeah, I'm just stoked that the uh, the traps back and obviously um, awesome turnout. I think I looked down. I think we topped out at about say 800 people listening today. Um, yeah, very very powerful, very impactful conversation. So yeah, thank you. Amen. Um, I, one last thing. Um, I, um, uh, Tony and I went to see a comedian, a couple comedians this weekend, and J.J. Walker. Remember him? Dynamite. Remember? Anyway. Oh, yeah. One. Yes. Um, he said something at the end of his show, which I thought was so apropos, um, and it actually transfers over. He was specifically talking about different races. 
Um, but I think it can be talked, it, it can, it can refer to people coming from whatever background, um, they might come. He said, we might've arrived on different ships, but we're all on the same boat and we need to come together and we need to be and recognize that we're all on this same boat together and we can't allow uh, government or anybody else to distract us from what needs to happen as we the people. I thought that was I love cool. it. Yeah. Beautiful. So I love it. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Well, thank you again, everybody. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing everybody again next Wednesday. And again, thank you one more time to Dr. Erica, Daquan, Dom, Asti, everybody who came up. I really appreciate it. This was a, a very warm welcome back. And uh, like like Phil said, the trap's back and we will be back again next Wednesday night. And thank you, Miss Robin, obviously. I appreciate you immensely. Thank you. And uh, make sure to follow everybody. Uh, um, the, the, their handles are right there. Make sure you follow everybody because everybody that's been on this panel has some really great stuff continuously on their on their Twitter space. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, everybody. Have a great night. Yeah. Bye. Enjoy, guys. Take it easy. Turning red